Our Heavenly Father, we want to thank you for the riches of your grace. We pray now that as we consider your word, by your grace, you would enable me to preach your word faithfully. We pray that you would transform us by your grace, that we might trust in Jesus alone as our Savior, and that we would walk in the good works that you have prepared for us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Or well, how do we experience God's resurrection power? How do we experience God's resurrection power? I think most of us are aware of the need for God's powerful intervention in our lives. We recognize our own weakness. We recognize the power of sin and temptation and the difficulty of living in a fallen world like this. We long for God to powerfully intervene, to miraculously work bringing breakthrough, bringing renewal in our lives. Now, of course, many Christians seek God's power in miraculous ways, don't they? Through, through healings or manifestations of uh, the Spirit or speaking in gifts like, uh, uh, like spiritual gifts, like speaking in tongues or prophecy. Uh, we hope that God's power will bring a more spiritual experience to the Christian life. Uh, others seek God's power in a victorious Christian life, overcoming poverty, overcoming sickness, successful in their career and their family, healthy and wealthy. Uh, other Christians seek God's power through victory over temptation and sin, no longer captive to sin, no longer struggling with temptation, but set free to, to live a holy life. Now, I think many of us have encountered those teachings before, and such teachings train us to look for God's power primarily in material things, uh, in healings, in tongues, in job promotions, in the absence of suffering from our lives, uh, in victory over sin. But is that the way that we experience God's resurrection power? What does it truly look like to experience the resurrection power of God in our lives. Well, that's the topic uh, today as we come now to Ephesians chapter 2 and verses 1 to 10, that passage we just read. Now, we've seen in chapter 1 verses 1 to 14 that God's master plan for the world, stretching from eternity past to eternity future, uh, is all centered on the Lord Jesus Christ. And Paul praised God for all the blessings that we have in Christ. We saw the electing love of the Father, choosing us to be his beloved children. We saw the redeeming work of the Son, dying to, to save us and then being raised as Lord of all. Uh, we saw the assuring work of the Holy Spirit, guaranteeing our heavenly inheritance. We saw that God in his great grace has blessed us with every spiritual blessing. And we saw that at the heart of God's master plan for the universe was Jesus Christ. God was at work in all things to unite all things under the rule of Jesus Christ to the praise of God's glory. And last week in chapter 1, verse 15 to 23, we considered our response to all those blessings. We saw that Paul prayed for spiritual insight. Paul prayed that we would grasp the fullness of all God's blessings for us, that we would know God better, that we would know our glorious hope, and that we would know God's resurrection power that he is working among us. Uh, that is, that we wouldn't just know God's blessings in our, in our head, that we can list them off like some doctrine class, 
but deep down in our hearts, we know God and we know his blessings. And remember, he wanted us particularly to know God's resurrection power at work in us, that very same power that worked in Jesus when he raised him from the dead. Uh, Look at verse uh, 19 uh, of chapter 1. Remember, he prayed that we might know what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. Paul prayed that we might know the resurrection power of God at work in our lives, that very same power that raised Christ from the dead and exalted him as the Lord of all, the King of kings, the Lord of lords. For in his great power, God took the one who had been swallowed up by death and raised him victorious to life, doing what I guess modern medicine could only dream of. And we saw that not only was Jesus exalted to God's right hand in the heavenly realms, but he was given the right to rule. He was ruling not only the physical universe, but also the spiritual beings as well. We see here that he's far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every title that can be given, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And so Paul is praying that our eyes would be enlightened, that we would realize that that very same resurrection power that he worked in Jesus Christ is at work in us, that we too can experience God's resurrection power. And in our passage, we see exactly how we can do that. Now, if we are to understand this resurrection power, we first need to understand our spiritual state before we become Christians. And we're at the first point on the outline, our previous state dead in sin. Our previous state, dead in sin. Look with me at verse 1. It says, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Now, sin is not just doing bad things, lies and and, and lust and greed and anger. We might call those sins. They're, They're trespasses and sins. But those things are just symptoms of a greater disease. See, the disease of sin is actually rejection of God or rebellion against God. Uh, It's when we say to God, say no to God so that we can live life our own way. It's when we dethrone God and put ourselves at the center of our lives. Uh, One way to uh, remember this is how the word sin is spelt. A little S at the beginning, a little N at the end, and a big I in the middle. Because sin is all about I. It's all about me living for me as the center of my life. And and Paul says here, we were dead in our sins. Not not physically dead. I mean, we're obviously all alive here this morning. I can see that maybe some of us have missed our morning coffee and we might not look very physically alive, but most of us, I think all of us are physically alive this morning. But before we are Christians, we were not physically dead, but we were spiritually dead. We were dead in our trespasses and our sins. That means we were dead towards God. We had no relationship with God, no future with God. If you like, we were like zombies. 
physically alive, spiritually dead, and a spiritual death that will one day lead to a physical death too. The reality of death, that every single person dies, is a testimony to our spiritual state before God. Before we believe in Jesus, we are dead in our sins and we're helpless to help ourselves. And in this pre-Christian life, notice how this sin is expressed. Verse 2, it says, we were following the course of this world. We live in a world that is against God, a world that lives for self-pleasure and for other gods, where religious people oppose Jesus and Christian people, where atheists and secularists also oppose Jesus and his people. And it shows through in the world's values in so many ways, the world's tribalism, the world's racism, the world's materialism, the world's self-dependence. And, and in our sin, we embrace the world's ways and the world's values and the world's religions. We live that sinful life, failing to honor God as we should, failing to obey him in our lives. And Ephesians tells us that not only were we following the world, but we were actually following Satan, who's called here the prince of this world. Look at verse 2. It says, we were following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. So we're reminded that this sinful world in which we live is, is under the power of Satan. He wants us to rebel against God. And through the world, he's influencing us, influencing us to do so. As the world's values and ways and religions tempt us away from submission to Christ, we're actually finding ourselves under the power of Satan. But in all this, we're not just helpless victims being swept along by the world and Satan. We're told here we were very much following our own desires. Look at verse 3. It says, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. That is, this rebellion against God is something that we all willingly participate in. Uh, we sin because that's what we want to do. No one is forcing us to sin. Our natural makeup is to live for ourselves. Uh, it's, uh, our natural desire is to do what we want to do, to live for our own advantage. That's why we struggle with greed and lust and anger and all these other trespasses and sins, because those desires aren't just outside in the people around us, but those things are lodged deep in the hearts of every one of us. Those of us who are parents will know that you never taught them to be selfish or angry or steal their, 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 their siblings' toys. They just do it naturally. We sin because we want to because we think those sins will make us happy or they will secure our future or they'll bring us approval from others. But what is the result of this way of life, following the world, following the devil, following our own sinful desires? Well, the result is in verse three, we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. See, every sin deserves God's judgment. And as children of wrath, we're told here, we deserve to face the righteous anger of God. We deserve to be punished now with death. We deserve to face eternal torment after death. 
And so if this morning we've not yet put our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, if we're still following our own sinful desires, living for ourselves, embracing the world's values around us under the power of Satan, then understand this. Right now, our state is dead in sin. Your relationship with God is broken. You're a child of God's wrath. You deserve God's anger and judgment. You're physically alive, spiritually dead. Now, understand me here. It's not that uh, Christians think that they are better than, than, than other people. This passage says that this is how we all once were. We were all dead in sin. There's no exceptions here. And Paul chooses his language very carefully here. He doesn't say that we were sick with sin. See, uh, sick people can call a doctor. Sick people can take their medicine. Uh, sick people can do their bit to get themselves better little by little. But, of course, dead people, by definition, can't do anything at all. Uh, I've had to take many funerals over the years, and I've never been at a funeral where the deceased person has participated in the service in any way. I mean, that would be a rather terrifying experience, I can tell you. I would definitely remember that. But being dead in sin means that there's absolutely nothing that we can do to save ourselves. It's, it's not a matter of trying harder or doing better, uh, you know, a little bit more religion or a little bit more morality. It's not about getting back on the right path, as many other religions teach us. No, being dead in sin means that there's absolutely nothing at all that we can do to save ourselves. We are dead in sin. And our only hope is for God to powerfully intervene to make us alive. So that brings us to the second point this morning, our new state, alive in Christ, our new state, alive in in Christ. And, and verse 4 begins with those marvelous words, but God, but God. Verses 1 to 3, the subject is you. You were dead. You were following the world. You were following your own sinful desires. You were a child of wrath. But in verse 4 to 10, the subject is God, but God. God has done what we couldn't do. When we were dead in our sins and powerless to save ourselves, God acted to make us alive. Look at, with me at verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Now, those verses are telling us that in his great love, God has acted to take sinful people like us from spiritual death to spiritual life in the ultimate display of God's power. He takes dead sinners and he makes them alive. Just like Jesus was dead and God raised him from the dead and seated him as the ruler over all, so God makes us who were dead in sin alive in Christ, and he seats us in heaven in the supreme act of resurrection power. How has God done this? How has God brought us into this new state? 
Well, secondly, he has saved us. Look at verse five. It says, even when we were dead in our trespasses, God made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Now, of course, that word salvation, it means rescue. Uh, I don't know if you remember a few years ago, there was a group of Thai schoolboys who got trapped in that uh, cave by rising floodwaters. Uh, they were headed for certain death. I mean, they were kilometers inside uh, this, this cave. Uh, but there was this great rescue mission and uh, involving thousands of people. And 18 days later, miraculously, the divers pulled all of the children out from the cave alive. That's salvation. That's, that's rescue. And, and so Jesus saves us. He, he brings us from spiritual death to spiritual life through the cross. You see, it's our sin that has broken our relationship with God. It's our sin that deserves God's wrath. But on that cross, Jesus takes all of our sin, all of our punishment onto himself. He dies in our place. Remember on the cross, as Jesus dies, the, the, the sun turns to darkness. Jesus cries out in that loud voice, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because there as Jesus hangs on the cross, he is taking upon himself all that righteous anger of God that you and I deserve. He dies so that we can be rescued, rescued from God's judgment. And so we're alive, we're saved, but notice he doesn't just save us and make us alive, but he also seats us in heaven as well. Look at verse six again. He raised us up with him and seated us with him, with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Now we see here the doctrine that's often called union with Christ. I don't know if you've heard of that doctrine before, union with Christ. Union with Christ means that when we put our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, we are spiritually united with him. It's like in marriage, when you, you say your marriage vows, the two become one flesh. And both parties bring their resources and share them with each other. So it always means, I guess, in marriage that one party gets a you know a better deal than others, depending on you know your relative resources. But when you get married, it's no longer you know you have your things and you have your things. No, they're shared with each other because you're now one in marriage. Or we might think of of pregnancy, like when you get pregnant. Uh, the child will grow inside your stomach. They are in you. They are united with you. And so where you go, the child goes. And uh, what you eat, uh, the child will eat uh, as well uh, because you and the child are one. You are united. And so when we put our trust in Jesus, we are spiritually united with him such that his death is our death. And his resurrection is our resurrection. And when Jesus is seated in heaven, we are seated in heaven too. Of course, physically, we're all sitting here right now. But it's saying the spiritual reality is that united with Jesus, we're seated with him in the heavenly places. And so in Jesus, we are blessed. In Jesus, we are adopted and forgiven. In Jesus, we are promised an inheritance, even though all of those things, they rightly belong to Jesus as the son of God. But because we're united with him, he shares all of those things with us. 
And so our union with Christ means we're, we're not only raised from spiritual death to spiritual life. We're not only rescued from, uh, from the rule of Satan in this world to share in the rule of Christ, but we're actually seated with Jesus in the heavenly places, reigning with him, even as he reigns over all things. And so what all this means is that with the coming of Jesus, history has changed in a dramatic way. For those who believe in Jesus, no longer are we headed for wrath and judgment. But in the coming ages, we will experience the grace and the kindness and blessing of God to the full. When Jesus returns, we'll be blessed in heaven, not only with the spiritual blessings, but the physical ones as well. Now, we need to remember in all this, it's not ultimately about us. I think it's very easy when you read the Bible and you hear all these wonderful things that God has done for us that we, we somehow think that it's all about us. I mean, that's what sin, our sinful nature is like, isn't it? About putting ourselves in the middle. But verse 7 tells us why God has done all this. Look at verse 7. It is so that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Now, in other words, for, for all of eternity, we'll be these living, breathing examples of the grace and the kindness of God. Uh, many families have at home a little cabinet where they like to put all their trophies and medals uh, that their children uh, have won. It's kind of like meant to remind you of all the, the great achievements uh, that you, you've, you've had. That's what's kind of on, on view here. Uh, we, we will be, if you like, uh, trophies on display, displaying the, the immeasurable greatness, kindness, grace of God, so that God is glorified for all eternity as, as the heavenly beings look on and see here these dead sinners who've been made alive by God's grace. It will resound to the glory and praise of God. These amazing things he has done. Do you remember the refrain from chapter 1? Chapter 1, verse 6 said, to the praise of his glorious grace. Chapter 1, verse 12, to the praise of his glory. Chapter 1, verse 14, to the praise of his glory. God's master plan is that as he shows grace to his church, it will resound for all eternity to the glory of God. You see, we are not just saved for ourselves so that we can enjoy the blessings of God. We are saved for the glory of God. We are saved to be these heavenly trophies shining forth the depths of God's kindness and his grace. So there's the previous state, dead in sin. There's the new state, alive in Christ. And then the last part of the passage tells us how does the change take place? How do I change from being a child of wrath to being a child of God? How do I move from judgment to blessing, from death to life? Well, point three, the change is by grace and not works by grace and not works. Of course, at the heart of every other religion is the idea of works. You have to do the right things to make the, the God happy. So if you follow the rules, if you fast, if you pray, if you meditate, if you go on a pilgrimage or whatever the rules are, then you will make the God happy. You might earn his good favor or in some religions, maybe you'll get some good karma, so you won't be reincarnated as a cockroach. 
But in Christianity, it's different, isn't it? It's, it's not about what you yourself do, because we know that no amount of doing good deeds can make up for the sins we've done. I mean, just try that. If you ever get, uh, if someone ever gets arrested and they get taken to the court, you can't say to the judge, you say, look, uh, I know I, I messed up. I, I shouldn't have killed that person, you know, when I got angry. But you know what? I'll, I'll help people take out their garbage every day and I'll, I'll give, do some charity work. Please don't send me to jail. No, it doesn't work like that, does it? Your good deeds in the future can't make up for your sins in the past. We were dead in our sins, but we are saved by God's grace. Look at verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. Verse 5. By grace you have been saved. Or verse 7. So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. At these verses, they speak of God's mercy. God's mercy is when God doesn't give us what we do deserve. When God doesn't give us what we do deserve, that is his judgment. Uh, God's grace, that is when God does give us as a gift what we don't deserve. He does give us what we don't deserve, that is salvation. That we speak of here of God's love. That's when God acts for our own benefit and good. And, and God's kindness here is talking about his faithfulness. His goodness. So as people dead in sin, we can't earn our own salvation. We can't save ourselves. We can't do anything to move ourselves from death to life. But God gives us salvation as a gift. He gives us salvation not because of our goodness, not because of our obedience, not because of our morality or our religious uh, rituals or our hard work or anything that we do. He gives us salvation as a gift. He makes us alive because of who he is, his own love and mercy and kindness and grace. And verse 7 tells us his immeasurable grace will follow us for all eternity, not just enjoying the spiritual blessings of the present, but grace for the future means we will enjoy all of his blessings forever. We will live to the praise of his glorious grace. So it depends, salvation depends on God's love and not our own goodness. And secondly, it depends on God's gift and not our own work. I think we see that in verse 8. It says, by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Grace, you see, is what makes Christianity different from the other religions. Here's another way of remembering it. Uh, religion is spelt D-O, do, right? D-O, do. Every other religion is about what you must do. Here, Christianity is spelt done. It's all about what Jesus has already done in full for us. And what this means is it doesn't matter whether you've been baptized or not, or, or you are serving as an elder or a deacon, or you go to a Bible study group or you're a, a wonderful prayer warrior or you give money to the church or you help your neighbors or you care for the poor or you're very good in evangelizing the lost or any of those things none of those things are good works that are going to earn you merit so that you can get to heaven they're all good things to do of course things that christians should be doing but salvation is not by my work salvation is not by my effort or by my merit 
It's a gift. It's God's work to us. By grace, you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It's the gift of God. Now, of course, this was exactly the issue that lay at the heart of the Reformation about 500 years ago. All kinds of false teachings had leapt, had crept into the Roman Catholic Church at that time. Heresies like these, this is paraphrases, God helps those who help themselves. Or obey God and he will give you grace. Or give money to church and he will give you a ticket to heaven. Those were the kinds of things being taught. And it was false teachings like that that made salvation by works that meant that reformers like John Calvin and Martin Luther and so on had to fight hard to recover the true gospel. What we find here, that we're not saved by our works, but we're saved by what God has done. We're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, according to scripture alone, for the glory of God alone. Now, I think we often misunderstand what faith is about. We say it's salvation. We're saved by grace through faith. What is faith? Uh, faith is not a leap in the dark. A true biblical faith is always based on evidence. You put your faith in someone who's faithful. You trust in someone who is trustworthy. And faith is not a religious feeling either. Sometimes people say, I wish I had your faith. As if faith was some kind of religious feeling or, or, or substance that some people could have more often, others could have less. And faith is actually not a particularly religious word at all. The word faith, it just means rely, trust, depend. It means putting your life in the hands of another person. And that's something that we do all the time. See, faith or trust is what happens when you get into a grab car, right? You, you put your faith in the driver to get you to the destination. Now, your faith, it doesn't drive the car. Uh, your faith uh, doesn't get you there. But of course, without faith, without you trusting the driver and getting into the car, you're never going to get to the destination, are you? So faith is like the open hands that receive a gift. Now, if I open my hands right here, it doesn't mean that some gift is magically going to appear. I mean, that would be great. Open my hands and then donuts appear or something. It doesn't work like that, is it? It's the giver that makes the gifts appear. The open hands are merely the mechanism to receive the gift that is given. But of course, if I never open my hands and receive the gift, I'm never, gonna, I'm never going to have it. I often use this uh, example. Uh, imagine after the service today that I uh, presented our uh, service leader, David Chung, where's David here at the front, uh, with uh, you know, this uh, wonderful Maybank uh, card here, right? And uh, the pin written on the back uh, for him to, to you. Know, I told him, look, I've opened a bank account that has one million ringgit in it. Right? And I want to give it to you as a gift. Do you want to have it? <laughs> there it is. Now, the only way that David can withdraw the, the cash is to trust me that there's actually a million in the, the, the card and, and, and use the card, put in the pin, withdraw the cash. But how stupid it would be for David after church to go around boasting. Aren't I awesome? You know, I'm David Chung. I'm a millionaire. I'm so rich, you know, because I've got this card and I've got this cash. That would be stupid, isn't it? Because neither the card nor the cash is his work. 
He didn't earn the money, he didn't merit it in any way. It was my money and I gave him the cart. Now, I'm sorry, actually, I don't have a million uh, ringgit in the bank account and I'm not gonna give you the debit card. Sorry about that. <laughs> uh, but the point is this, you see, faith is, is not a work that I can boast in. Uh, as if on judgment day, I could proudly boast and say, look, I'm in heaven because I trusted Jesus when all those other people, they didn't trust in Jesus. You know, all those other people, they were too sinful to do it, but I did it. I believed, so I deserve to be here in heaven. No, faith is simply trusting in what Jesus has done for us. And even faith here, we're told, is the gift of God. Look at verse 8. By grace, you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. The whole thing is a gift of God's grace. Even the faith is a gift. So I can't boast before others, before God and say, look, I'm here because I believe. And I certainly can't boast before other people around me and, say, and think, oh, I'm better than you or I'm more righteous than you because I'm saved. No, we're all sinners saved by grace through faith. Now, if we've really understood this, there will be an objection that inevitably comes. If I'm saved by grace alone, through faith alone, then surely it doesn't matter how I live now. I can just live however I want, do whatever sins I want, because anyway, God's going to forgive me in the end. Now, if you make that objection, it means that you've really understood what I've been saying so far. Yes, we're saved by grace. But on another level, you've also misunderstood. You've misunderstood the goal of grace, the goal of grace. Because not only have we been saved from something, we've also been saved for something. Look at verse 10. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. I must say that the beaches in Malaysia are not quite as spectacular as the ones in Australia. I mean, Penang, not too bad. In Australia, you have these great waves and they have these lifesavers who patrol the beach. Now, if someone gets swept out into the sea and the lifesaver goes out and rescues them, brings them back onto the shore, gives them CPR, what should the, what should the rescued person then do? Presumably, they should thank the person who just saved them. I tell you what they wouldn't do. Get back on their surfboard and go back out into the sea. What's the point? The whole reason the lifesaver had to rescue was because you were swept out to the sea. So why are you saved? And then, and then go back out. I mean, you're playing football. It's, it's raining. You're muddy. So at halftime, you go in and take a shower and clean yourself up. And then you go back out into the mud again. What's the point, you see? No, that we're saved by God's grace for a purpose. We're reminded here, salvation is God's work. We are his workmanship. But having been saved and recreated in Christ, we're now called to walk in the good works that God has prepared for us. So good works don't lead to salvation. We're saved by grace alone through faith alone in Christ alone. Good works don't lead to salvation, but saving faith always leads to good works. Saving faith always leads to good works. Let me put it another way. Good works are not the root of salvation. They are the fruit of salvation. Good works are not the root of salvation. They are the fruit of salvation. John Calvin puts it this way. 
We're saved by grace alone, but saving grace is never alone. We're saved by grace alone, but saving grace is never alone. It's always accompanied by good works. And so if we've truly appreciated all that God has done for us, our lives will change. We'll turn away from that old life of sin that was headed for judgment and the wrath of God. We'll live out a new life. We'll be thankful for being rescued. And we'll live life differently as a result. Just as God predestined us for salvation, chapter 1, we're told here he's also predestined us for good works. Verse 10 says, we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And so if we've been saved, we will strive to look for those good works that God has prepared for us to do, to live out our salvation to the glory of God. And and so if we are Christians and we're not yet been baptized, well, we should get baptized. That's a good work that God has prepared for us to do. It, It won't save you. It won't merit your way into heaven, but it's a good thing to do. Or if we're a Christian and we're not helping the poor, we should do something. If we've received such treasures from God, we should be generous with those around us. But of course, giving money to the poor is not going to get you to heaven. Or if we're a Christian and we're not engaged in ministry in a local church, we should get involved in the local church and serve other Christians. It's not going to save us or bring us merit with God, but it's a right response to God's saving grace for us. And all these things and and many more good works we should do. Uh, Later on in the second half of Ephesians, we're going to see many more good works that God wants us to walk in, in our speech, in our relationships, in our love for others, in our patience. But all those good works, they're just the fruit of salvation. They are our response to the grace of God. They don't merit our salvation, but they result from it. And so in response to God's grace, in thankfulness for what he's done, we will live new lives for the glory of God. That is God's grand master plan. By his grace, to save a people for himself, to live under the rule of Jesus, to resound his glory to the world. So let's uh, return then to where we've begun. Have you experienced God's resurrection power? Have you experienced God's resurrection power? Now, I hope you see now that when I'm asking that question, I'm not asking, have you experienced a particular miraculous healing? I'm not asking you if you possess a particular spiritual gift. I'm not asking you if your career is successful or your family is happy. I'm not asking you whether you're triumphing over sin in your life. When I ask you that question, have you experienced God's resurrection power? What I'm asking you is, has your life been transformed by the grace of God so that you're no longer dead in sin, but you're alive in Christ? Have you received God's gift of salvation by faith? Have you changed from someone headed for judgment to someone headed for glory? That is the immeasurable great power that God is working in us bringing dead sinners to new life. That is the resurrection power he wants us to know and experience in our lives. Now, perhaps here this morning, some of us have not yet trusted in Jesus as king 
and Savior. Maybe we're still trusting in our own good works or our own morals to get us to heaven. If that's you, if you want to experience God's resurrection power in all of its fullness, then can I invite you to put your trust in Jesus as your Lord and Savior this morning. Receive this salvation. Allow God to transform you into a totally different person, leaving that sin, sinful, selfish life behind to be a new person for his glory. Now, perhaps many of us this morning have already uh, put our trust in Jesus. And, and if that is you, please be thankful for God's powerful work in your life. Be amazed that God would save a sinner like you and me to be one of his children. That's truly amazing, isn't it? It's not something that we deserved in any way, but God has been so kind. And if we want to see this resurrection power at work in other people, then what should we do? We should share this gospel of grace with others. We should tell people about Christ and we will witness God's powerful work in their life. There is no one that is beyond salvation. There is no one who is too far gone to be rescued. No, the gospel can take dead sinners and make them alive. Paul prays in chapter one, our eyes would be enlightened, that we would know God's resurrection power. He prays that we would grasp the enormity of what God has done for us. He wants us to appreciate how amazing is his grace. That's God's resurrection power. And I pray this morning that we will all know it and experience it personally. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we want to thank you for your powerful work within us. Once we were dead in sin and headed for judgment, but in your grace, you have made us alive. We thank you, Lord, for the new life that you have given us in Christ. And we pray that you'd help us never to be trusting in ourselves and our own good works, but only in Jesus. We pray that your grace would indeed change us so that we would live out the good works that you have prepared for us. We pray this for the praise of your glorious grace. In Jesus' name, amen.